This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What we've got here is failure to communicate. And it get hot. I got a lot of. I got hairy legs that turn. That 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 that, that turn. Uh, uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They'd look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. With your host, Mike Paul. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Hey guys, welcome back to the Mike Paul cast. I am, of course, your host, Mike Paul. This week, we have a very special episode for you guys that I'm very excited to uh, put forward today. Um, this is someone who I've followed for a long time, and I have always wanted to speak to, um, and I'm so excited we finally got the chance to do so. Um, so my guest today is Scott Horton. Uh, Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute. He's the editorial director of Antiwar.com. He's the author of Fool's Errand. Time to End the War in Afghanistan, host of the Scott Horton Show, where he has recorded over 5,400 episodes dating back to 2003, um, and also the author of his newest book, The Great Ron Paul. So every time I listen to Scott talk, I've listened to probably a couple dozen interviews of him speaking, um, his level of, of knowledge and depth of understanding on all the foreign affairs in the Middle East dating back to 1970s or even before that. It's so deep that I always reach a tipping point where I can't keep up with what Scott's saying. Um, I feel like this must be how my wife feels when I talk about cars. Um, you know, she knows what a Pontiac GTO is, but once I start talking about round port cylinder heads versus D port cylinder heads and cam duration lift, um, it's one of those things where it, it just kind of loses the, the person listening. So my goal with this was to bring Scott on to kind of bring it down to a one-on-one level where I can follow along easier. Um, and he did a great job at that, and, and you're going to be impressed uh, with his his knowledge and how fast he can reference dates and, and, and everything going on that's that's in history or, or current events. Um, I, I actually brought my brother on for this to uh, help me do the interview because my brother Nick Paul is the one who first introduced me to Scott Horton um, and his content. So... I brought Nick along because he has a, a higher threshold of, of knowledge, of understanding um, from uh, all the work Scott does. So it, it was a great balance of different levels of knowledge that we have to to kind of pick Scott's brain. Um, if you have to ever stop, pause, rewind, and listen to something twice, three, four, ten times, 
Don't feel bad. That's natural when you listen to Scott Horton. Um, but try to keep up. It's a great episode. So please, without further ado, welcome my guest, Scott Horton. All right, Scott. Well, welcome to the Mike Paul cast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So your uh, depth of understanding of the foreign policy history and what's going on um, in the Middle East, it literally blows my mind every time I listen to an interview when you speak. Um, I try to keep up, you know, as much as I can listening halfway through. I always get to a point where you make me feel the same way my wife feels when I talk about cars. It gets so complex where I'm like, man, I'm trying to keep up, but it is, there's so much information. Um, and it's something that really fascinates me. And I, I'm trying to uh, learn as much as I can about it. That's, that's why I'm having you on here tonight. Um, my brother, Nick, is joining me. He's the one that first turned me on to your content. Um, I believe he found you through Dave Smith, who we, we both listen to. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, he has a much higher understanding of, the, of, of these, inf- this information than I do uh, so basically, I want to get to ask, you know, for people who don't have any real uh, knowledge of what's going on, people who just go to work, come home, raise a family, they know we're at a war, they know we might have a couple going on, we're fighting over there, so we don't have to fight here, terrorists are bad, 9-11 was bad. What do you do, in, like an elevator pitch, a one to two minute kind of uh, spiel to let them know the actual horror of what's going on in the Middle East and, and kind of shatter their worldview of the propaganda that's on the American news. Yeah. Well, that's a, a really good way to put it. I mean, I think assuming that I have a willing listener, I mean, step one really is to say what we all know, but we kind of compartmentalize this stuff that America is the world superpower, as they call it. That means America is the dominant political economic and military force on the planet and essentially in a sort of a neo fashion not exactly like the old days but essentially america has taken the place of the british empire as the world empire that dominates the planet and you know some of the time we pretend like oh yeah well you know usa we're number one and that's just great and we're a superpower and look how bad we are and whatever but What's the real point of that? I mean, mean, what it really means is that we can't be a republic because we're an empire. It means that we've given over the form of our government here in our country and our way of life that presumably, at least it used to be, presumably put liberty first, the, the safety and happiness of the American people first. And all that has to take a back seat we the people to form a poor a more perfect union for our society here has to take a back seat to the role of global leader and that means war starter that's what it means it means like when the japanese attacked us at pearl harbor that's what we do now we start wars against other people and you know the reality is that people get emotional as hell about this right oh when you're accusing America of doing something wrong. Well, okay, so what? America does wrong things all the time. I mean, there are members of your favorite football team who beat their wives. They're, you know, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States when Al-Qaeda was attacking us, and yet he was still backing them in Bosnia and in Chechnya and in Kosovo, thinking that he'd somehow bribed them to not continue to attack us 
while continuing all the same policies that were provoking them to attack us, like occupying the bases in Saudi Arabia and supporting Israel. And so he got America attacked. Now, does that mean that America is bad or it just means that Bill Clinton is bad? Mm-hmm. Right. And and why do we have to get, you know, uh, why why do grown adults have to get so emotionally wrapped up in these topics that they're not willing to listen to the reality of the trouble that our government has gotten us in? So, you Scott, know, um, and it is a nonpartisan thing. If you lean Democrat, then pay more attention when I pick on Reagan and the Bushes. Okay, when if you lean right wing, then pay more attention when I pick on Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, whichever makes you feel better. But the reality is every president since I was a toddler has completely screwed us and screwed the people of the Middle East. They've made everything worse and nothing better. They all suck. And that's just the fact. You know what? I'm from Texas. I'm an American. I don't side with. Iraq or Iran or some other country over my own country. It's just I side with the truth over the lies of my government, which happens to be, as Martin Luther King correctly said in 1967, the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the planet today. That is just true. And, you know, why is it always the the toughest guys whose emotions get, you know, the most brittle when confronted with that truth. And just to do it on super fast forward, Jimmy Carter started backing the terrorists in Afghanistan and he started backing Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran. Ronald Reagan continued both of those policies. In a fight over war debts, Saddam invaded Kuwait and then Reagan's vice president turned president, George H.W. Bush launched Iraq War One to force him back out again. That was the consequence of the last war, right? Come and do that. But then what happens? We stay in Saudi Arabia forever in the name of protecting Iraq's Shiite supermajority from Saddam Hussein. And that means a policy of keeping combat forces, aircraft and army on bases in Saudi Arabia for the entire eight years of the Bill Clinton presidency, really the entire decade of the 1990s. And that is what caused Carter and Reagan's former freedom fighter heroes, the Mujahideen Arab Afghans who went to fight in the Afghan war in the 80s. That's what turned them against us. And that was when bin Laden's group, which was the Azam group, merged with Egyptian Islamic Jihad and decided they're going to target the Americans. And they targeted us all through the 1990s. And finally, on September 11th, succeeded in uh, in launching an attack on America devastating enough to provoke the reaction they were going for. They were trying to scare us away. They were trying to bait us into invading Afghanistan so they could replicate the same war we helped them wage against the Soviet Union in the 1980s to bog the Soviets down, bleed them to bankruptcy and force them out, destroy their empire. Worked for them. Now they're doing the same thing to us. We're doing the same thing to ourselves. The the reason America backed the terrorists in Afghanistan in the 80s was for the direct and deliberate explicit purpose of bogging the Soviets down, bleeding them to bankruptcy, weakening their empire and forcing them out. Bin Laden said through the entire 1990s, that was his strategy. I'm going to bog you down, bleed you to bankruptcy, force you out the hard way. 
It's the only thing you Americans understand force, right? And so then what does America do? Go right to Afghanistan. Been there 19 years fighting now. Spent trillions. And then if that's the case, if all bin Laden ever wanted was for America to invade Afghanistan, what does it mean that we got rid of the socialist infidel Saddam Hussein and the socialist infidel Muammar Gaddafi and waged a war, you know, that halfway achieved regime change against the socialist infidel Bashar al-Assad in Syria. All of these wars fought indirectly or even directly in the case of Libya and Syria, really, on behalf of bin Laden and his men doing their dirty work. Here was a group of 400 bandits, basically, exiled on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, as far as you could ever get from anywhere. With no power, no military force, bin Laden didn't even control a single district in Afghanistan. He was an, a guest of the Taliban. And they got America to do all of their dirty work for them, overthrow the whole region, destabilize the whole region, radicalize the population in terms of politics and religion, discredit and destabilize all of the dictatorships that are the client states of the United States and prepare the, the region for further revolution and war into the future. And that's all that Bush and Obama and Trump have done is continue that exact same policy of doing the enemy's dirty work for them. And that was the fast forward version I skipped out uh, on a little bit, but basically <laughs> you heard me and that's right. This is Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton and George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump's fault. They ruined everything. They did nothing right. They did nothing but make it worse. I can say for Donald Trump, at least he called off CIA support for al-Qaeda in Syria when he came into power in 2017. But he didn't end the war and he tried to get out twice, but then he let the military roll him. In 2018 and 19, he gave up and let them keep the troops in there anyway. And so now that he's uh, quite apparently on his way out, I guess 90 percent chance on his way out. Um, the Obama, I mean, the Biden government is already saying, yes, we can't wait to get back to supporting Democratic forces in Syria. Yeah. Yeah, in other I words, head chopping suicide bombers against the secular dictator in the three piece suit with the clean shaven chin. Yeah, you know, I actually just saw that today and I was. You know, I've, I have a lot of Trump friends that are saying, like, you know, Trump is trying to get out of all these wars. And look, he tries to end the war down in Afghanistan. And I just heard Dave Smith talk about this on Joe Rogan's podcast that Donald Trump is the first president since Eisenhower, they think, that mentioned the term military industrial complex. I mean, to your knowledge, is that true? Is that the first guy yeah. that has said it? I mean, uh -huh. John, I, I guess JFK kind of alluded to it with like the He's secret also societies the, and all that. He's the first kind of president thing. since Reagan. Who hasn't started a war? I mean, Reagan invaded Grenada was all he did, which is still bad. But sure. Every president since him has started wars. Um, right. And and Trump has not. He's kept the five or seven or ten, depending on how you count them, that he inherited going the whole time, though. Right. And so that's what do you, still pretty bad. This is what I try to get my my head around, because part of me, I want to believe that Donald Trump is like, you know, actually trying to scale back and pull out of Afghanistan and Syria 
and and or he already i guess explicitly the policy is no longer regime change in syria but we're just staying there to squash isis which most americans can get on board with because the whole uh, bashar al-assad has to go uh narrative has kind of collapsed and it seems like that has been put on the back burner maybe if biden and kamala get back and i mean in all likelihood they will and then that'll be back on the menu but I, I don't know what to make of Trump's kind of worldview, because on one hand, he you know talks about how the military industrial complex is this problem and he's trying to pull back from the wars. And whenever he does, the media attacks him and he seems like that's his intent. And I don't know if it's just like, you know, does he have the balls to do it or is it, you know, when you get sworn into office, they show you some, you know, the old smoky room with the footage of JFK you've never seen. And then it's like, yeah. OK, you know, this is really out of your hands, you know. Um, and then he did things like when uh, Congress passed the bill to end the war in Yemen and the blockade, he vetoed that, which to me, I really cannot get my head around that, that Congress was on board with this. But yeah. Donald Trump himself would veto it. I really can't. Well, understand look, I that. mean, the simple explanation is the guy's an inch deep. You know, people project all their hopes and fears on the guy the same way they did with Barack Obama. But he ain't Ron Paul. He ain't even Rand Paul. You know, he's essentially what he is, is he's a rich old golfer who watches Sean Hannity. You know, he's not even really a Tucker fan. He's a Hannity fan. And that's all <laughs> that's he is. You know, and that goes for liberals who think that he's a fascist demon monster. And it goes for libertarians and conservatives who think that somewhere in there is this, you know, wise and decent Pat Buchanan who wants to save the republic or something like that. It's just not so. He's just a Hannity fan. That's all he is. And you could ask any Hannity fan out on the golf course, you think we've wasted enough money trying to help these sand N-words yet? And they would tell you, yes, we have. We're tired of the effort of helping them. You know, that's the kind of attitude to get out of Donald Trump. He's not Ron Paul. He doesn't have an ideology that says to preserve your limited constitutional republic and its mandate to protect liberty. You must rein in your imperialist foreign policy and balance your budget. And all of these things, he doesn't feel that way. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't really think anything. Now, he feels certain ways. One of the things, to his credit, the way he feels is that he doesn't believe in the American mystical mission to lead the world, right? He doesn't. He doesn't think that. I mean, look at look at the Democrats and and the and the establishment. He says he mutters something about. I don't know why are we even in Japan? They can pay their own bills. And they absolutely freak out like he just divide, uh, you know, denied the uh, virginity of the of Mary, uh, Jesus's mother or whatever. Like you're not allowed to doubt the basic precepts of the American world order that we must be in Asia. We must be in Europe. We must be the dominant force in the Middle East. We must defend Eastern Europe against Russian aggression and contain their power. And we must keep the sea lanes open from the threat of the Chinese rising dragon. They're, they're an endless pile of excuses for power that Trump just doesn't believe in them. But that doesn't mean he has like a core conviction against them either. Well, why do we have to keep paying the Japanese bills? Can't they pay their own way in the world? And somebody says, yeah, but you know what? We prevent them from actually having an independent foreign policy, which could be a problem. And, you know, we they buy our debt and blah, blah, blah. And so it's fine. And then he goes, OK, whatever. And then he backs down. So he, the one where I'll give him the most credit is Afghanistan. 
because there he appointed Zalmay Khalilzad, the extremely important neoconservative Mandarin, to negotiate a deal with the Taliban. And he did. And they really did succeed in um, in signing a peace deal last February the 29th that promised that America would get out by next May of 2021 as long as they promised not to harbor al-Qaeda fighters in their country or any other international terrorists in their country, which they've long promised to do um, as one of their preconditions before even any negotiations. We promise we'll keep al-Qaeda down and out. No problem. So Trump has done that over the dead body of the entire American foreign policy establishment. You know, H.R. McMaster last week or two weeks ago compared him to Neville Chamberlain capitulating to Hitler for wanting to make a deal with the Taliban that you guys can have your own territory where you're from. You know, yeah, this is just like ceding Czechoslovakia to the Germans. Like England was prepared to invade Germany to force them out of Czechoslovakia anyway. I don't know where anybody ever gets that whole thing from. Because he said, because Chamberlain said, peace in our time, which made him sound naive, right? Um, but anyway, um, this is the one where Trump has done the most work. And um, and then now, I don't know, if, I'm sure you guys have seen the news in the past couple of days that there's been a major purge from the Department of Defense. All the top leaders yep. at the Pentagon have been fired, the undersecretary for policy and all these other guys. They have a new secretary of defense. He's a former Green Beret from the Afghan war and was on the National Security Council in the White House. And his name is Christopher Miller, which, by the way, Chris Miller was a great pro skater back in the day. Anyway, <laughs> uh, different guy. This guy, Christopher Miller, is in there and he's got Douglas McGregor, yes. who is a wise, thoughtful Pat Buchanan type conservative anti-war guy um, to be his senior advisor something like that, special advisor or something. So I'm told by Pentagon reporter Mark Perry, who I interviewed on the show today, that yes, it is not just speculation, but it is a fact that the reason McGregor is there is to get us out of Afghanistan before Inauguration Day. Yes, that's beautiful. And Scott, that, this that, is a... Sorry, this is a, a great interview because you're answering every question I have prepared before I even have to ask you. <laughs> it's, I have all these things I, I want to get to, to Douglas McGregor, and it's like, boom, boom, boom. You just transition through all of it. So yep. anyways, keep going. Well, keep going. You, I mean, I, I, um, I'm not really one to preach hope and change in any politician, but presuming, just like with, with Khalilzad, in fact, presuming that Donald Trump has truly given the instruction that I got your back. I mean it. See this through. Get it done. I yeah. believe McGregor can get it done. I think if there's one man in all of Washington, D.C. who could get it done, that guy is one tough SOB and a really smart guy and really commands a hell of a lot of respect inside the U.S. Army as well. I'm not sure how, how well that works with the uh, four-star generals um, and so forth. They got rid of him when he was still just a colonel because he was too good to be a general, you know. Um, but I know I bet you the junior officers love him, man. And um, if, if, if there's, you know, irresistible force versus unmovable object. Right. That's what we have here. So so if anyone I, can close down that Bagram Air Base and get our guys out of Afghanistan, he's the man. And if he can't do it, we're going to have the same conversation in four years. Well, it brings me a lot of hope to hear you say that. 
Um, so, so my question is, what is what does that factor into the status of the presidential election? Um, if if Trump's standing there threatening to pull the plug on the on the military industrial complex, is that something that might bring them to the table to negotiate? You know, all this election fraud and everything that's going on. And nah, no, no, nah, totally separate issue. Really? And and you know what? I I don't really I haven't seen anything really convincing yet, and maybe there is about votes being flipped and stolen and all that. But I can tell you that even if that stuff is true, the courts are not going to side with Donald Trump yeah. on this. It is over. He'd have to turn over the results in four or five states at this point or something, three or four yeah, states and at this point. The thing is, I think that, all, you know, maybe 70 percent of the you know Republican establishment, given the chance they would flip on Trump, they kind of have to act like we're on Team Trump for their their voters. But it's like in reality mm-hmm. – this guy's a parasite. We need to purge him. That's kind of how they see him. And and the whole thing we, is a grift anyway. I mean, they're taking all the money. People are donating to the stop the steal effort. And they're just taking that money and retiring campaign debt with it. Right, yeah. right. They know and, he's stepping down. Yeah, no, I that's that's my gut feeling. And I have I know a lot of people that are like, no, no, wait, these bombshells are going to be coming out soon. Yeah. And it's like it's it's, you know, to me, if I'm going to put it in football terms, it's like he needs a touchdown, two point conversion, onside kick, touchdown, two point conversion. And then he's in overtime. You know, right. it's like it's a possibility, <laughs> yeah. but it's really not a likelihood. And yeah. so far, every time they've shown up in court, they get laughed right out of there. They've got nothing, yeah, you know, and that's the deal about court. Like- you got to put up or shut up and they don't have nothing, man. Not. So far, anyway. Gotcha. Yeah. So w- when I talk to a, a lot of my my, my neocon friends, um, uh, which is kind of the background Nick and I both kind of kind of grew up in, and before we became libertarians, um, they have that this whole perspective. Um, I've even heard like Dan Crenshaw say it about how these people in the Middle East they they wake up every day trying to plan another nine eleven, and it's our job to stop them. Um, what do you say to someone like that? You know, if they're if they're in the military or or if that's just something that they've been brought up believing, yeah. um, I tell them, look, it's Jimmy Carter's fault. Dan Crenshaw doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, Dan Crenshaw says that these guys just wake up and hate us, and the fact that he even phrases it that way just goes to show he doesn't know what the hell he's saying. Yeah. There's nothing about waking up in the morning. That makes people want to kill anybody else. At all. <laughs> it's completely stupid. It you is. know, you hear this from the Israelis all the time, too, in their internal propaganda. Oh, the whole con- the whole world is all anti-Semites. Seven billion people. They all want to kill you. If it wasn't for Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, Chad and Mike and Dave and everyone, they all wake up every morning just thinking about how they can kill all of the Jews and it's just like, you know what? That's just not true, okay? It's just not true. Most people get up in the morning and they don't think about Jews at all. Right? They live their life. They don't have they don't think about Israel at all. Israel, isn't that a, a word in a Christmas song or something? Born as the king of Israel? They don't know anything <laughs> about it. They don't care the first thing about it. Right? Same thing. Oh, the Americans. Yeah, that's right. Islam makes people wake up and say, oh, I really hate the middle part of North America. Yeah. yeah you know, I heard that in this society where 86 percent of them are self-identified Christians and, and the other dominant cultural and political force is are Jews in this heavily dominated Christian and Jewish society. Did you know that they let Muslims worship in peace at their mosques wherever they see wherever they see fit 
Ooh, that makes us so mad. Oh, we hate freedom in America where Christians and Jews allow the 1% of their population that's Muslim to pray and live in peace and prosperity next to them with no conflict ever all the time, with no pogroms ever. Oh, yeah, the terrorists, they just hate freedom. Oh, they just hate it when Christians allow Muslims to live in peace in their neighborhood. Ooh, doesn't that make you so mad when a Muslim is decent to a Christian, too? Yeah. What a bunch of crap. Mm-hmm. I got what Dan Crenshaw's ass in any debate on this. There's no question about it. OK, Osama bin Laden said over and over and over again. It's in his fatwa of, 90, uh, fatwa of 1996 and in 1998, the declarations of war against Jews and crusaders the declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. It's in his interviews with Peter Arnett and Peter Bergen of CNN, with Robert Fisk of The Independent, and with Abdelbari Atwan of um, Al-Quds Al-Arabi, over and over and over and over and over and over again. You support the kings and the dictators of the Middle East. You got combat forces on our holy arabian peninsula which you're using to bomb and blockade iraq for a decade straight keep pressure on our all of our potentates to keep oil prices artificially low to subsidize your economy at the expense of our people and you turn a blind eye to russia china india and uzbekistan and their outrages against muslims you carry you say you care about human rights so much but you don't say a word when there's a pogrom where you know, 30,000 Muslims are killed in India, which actually is true. And guess who did that? Modi, the current president of India, was the guy who had led a massive pogrom. His party had led a massive pogrom and killed like 20 or 30 Muslims, uh, 30,000 Muslims in India. And the Americans didn't say a word about it. And bin Laden said, see, they don't care about us at all. It's all lies. And and so what is what was missing there? What What was missing on the list? We hate you because you're Christians. But they revere Jesus, peace be upon him, the prophet who's in the same line with Abraham and David and Solomon and all of the Hebrew religion. That's where Islam comes from. It's just one more prophet after Jesus. If you say the word Jesus to a Muslim, they will interrupt you to say peace be upon him because they revere him. Um, Hmm. Not that American Christians need to know that about Islam or anything, I guess. Um, and you know, look, so now I guess Crenshaw would say, are you denying that bin Laden is a religious fanatic? And I would say no, but whatever. Uh, so is Pat Robertson is a religious fanatic. People say that George W. Bush was a religious fanatic. That's not why we went to war. We went to war because they knocked our goddamn towers down, right? Not because they're different from us. Well, that's why they went to war because we knocked their towers down. We were bombing Iraq on average every other day for eight years straight through the entire Bill Clinton years. Is there – sorry, is there any possibility in real life where where you could actually debate someone like uh, uh, Crenshaw, like set that up on a public forum? Well, I was supposed to debate Bill Crystal last May, but it all fell through. I remember that. It fell through because of COVID, right? Yep. Um, Um, It's supposed to still happen one day. I actually have but, Gene look, I mean, and I've on. seen Crenshaw talk about this before. And basically, he just picks an arbitrary point in space to say history began when they started it with us. But that's just not true. History yeah, began 
when the CIA overthrow, uh, overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953. Then 25 years later, they got their revenge and they overthrew that government in a popular revolution. And they that was led by the Shiite Ayatollahs. So the Americans lost their influence and control in Iran. And so they backed Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran to try to contain the Iranian revolution. At the same time, they're spending billions of dollars working with the Saudis and the Pakistanis to support not just the Afghan Mujahideen, but a massive army of tens of thousands of so-called Arab Afghans from all across the Middle East to go and fight in that war. Now, if Dan Crenshaw was here, he would go, okay, yeah, that's true. We all saw Charlie Wilson's war, okay? It like won an Oscar or something, okay? We all know that that's true. They made Rambo 3 about it, okay? So that's just true, right? And then it's also just true that the reason they turned against us was because H.W. Bush and then Bill Clinton invaded and occupied Saudi Arabia, the land of the holy, uh, you know, the holy peninsula, land of Mecca and Medina. Now, I'm a Texan. I don't know. Are either of you guys from New York? I had this conversation with a New Yorker one time. He started talking about West Point. What New Yorkers got West Point. The Texans, we've got the Alamo. And here's the thing. Some foreign army tried to build a military base in San Antonio. You know what we would do to them? We would kill them. That's what we would do to them. Same thing as if some foreign country tried to station combat forces near West Point in New York and to bomb Canada for 10 years straight. We would kill them rather than allow that to happen. And if we had to sneak over to Saudi Arabia and hijack airplanes to crash them into their towers to get them the hell out of San Antonio and West Point, that's exactly what we would do. Now, I'll raise you one. What if Jesus had been born in San Antonio and raised the stakes a little bit higher about how we feel about fighting for our land and what belongs to us? And that's the same thing with them. Why is it we're supposed to believe that Saudis are just a bunch of passive people who are going to take this stuff because their king says it's okay? Let me tell you something. If Greg Abbott said it was okay for Saudi Arabia to station combat forces in Texas in order to bomb Mexico, I wouldn't be impressed by Greg Abbott's permission at all. Any more than bin Laden was impressed by the fact that King Fahd had given America permission to be there. That was just what made Fahd a traitor to him. And so, yes, is he a religious nut? Yes, fine, sure. But is that why he does what he does, did what he did? No, no, not any more than Americans religious. Look at how many American Muslims, Christians, Jews and Muslims joined the U.S. Army after 9-11 to go and fight. Was that Islam that made them do that? Or that was solidarity with the victims in New York, their countrymen who'd been slaughtered. Right. Same thing. Simple as that. And they said it over and over and over again. And if you look at the September 11th hijackers, if you look at um, the uh, um, Omar Mateen that did the Pulse nightclub, if you look at the guys that did the Charlie Hebdo attack and the Nice attack in France, these guys, a lot of them, some of them were, but a lot of them weren't even uh, believing Muslims at all. 
weren't really practicing at all, weren't pious, devoted type, you know, guys. When um, the Brits, this is all in my book, Fool's Air, and I got all the research and all the footnotes in the world for this. The the all the intelligence agencies in Europe, um, you know, studied all the lone wolf type attackers, many of whom had been to Syria and back where they were moderate rebels working for us. Um, but anyway, they were almost all ignorant of real Islam. And the more they learned about the religion, the more opposed they were to violent terrorist attacks. It was having a superficial identity as a Muslim, but with no education about the religion at all. Those were the ones who were most likely to be able to be enticed into actually committing an act of violence. And I'll go Dan Crenshaw one further. The FBI has entrapped, get ready, 340 Muslim idiots into fake terrorist plots in this country since September 11th. 340. You've heard of the Liberty City 7. You've heard of the Fort Dix pizza plot. You heard of the JFK fuel depot, JFK airport fuel depot plot, the um, remote control plane attack on the Pentagon plot, the Portland, Oregon Christmas tree plot. The uh, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. These guys are basic. Oh, the, the Brooklyn Bridge. I love that one. This one, they went to a, a bookstore, a Muslim bookstore in Britain. I mean, in, in uh, Brooklyn. And they found like this, the dumbest kid there who was like 17 years old with an IQ of 100. And they convinced him that like, yeah, here's a blowtorch. Go stand over there. and We're going to pretend that we thought that you're trying to take down the Brooklyn Bridge with the thing. Or was that the subway plot, the retarded kid at the bookstore? That might have been the subway plot. There was one, one on the bridge, one in the subway, both just completely. Look, there were 300 something of these. And now I'm only getting my point because I got distracted because I hate the FBI so much. And you, you need to know the book, <laughs> the book on this is called The Terror Factory. Yeah, that's the FBI, FBI headquarters, J. Edgar Hoover building. That's the terror factory where they make up most of the terrorist threat against the United States. And I am here to tell you, in every single one of those entrapments, the FBI informant told the mark, don't you hate American foreign policy? Don't you identify with the dead women and children of Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan where this is happening? There. Now say you love Osama into the tape recorder. Okay. So, not once, not once did the FBI think that I know what we'll do to get this mark to say he loves Osama. We'll tell him, don't you hate being free? Don't you hate it that somebody's daughter gets to go to college and then vote in a primary election somewhere? Don't you hate that you're a Muslim and you're allowed to live free in this super duper majority Christian society? They don't ever say that. You know why? Because you can't get nobody to blow something up with some shtick like that. You play on building up their hatred for uh, injustice. Their hatred for things that the American government should not be doing to them in the first place. And, you know, when I went down my big list, I skipped Israel and Palestine. This is a huge one. OK, and it's not just. Well, look, if you asked Osama bin Laden, he would tell you, yes, the existence of Israel at all. But that's not the controversy, man. They created Israel in 48 and they got away with it. But they've lorded it over the Palestinians ever since. 
1967, they invaded. They never let the Palestinians have their own state. From the very beginning, they made a secret deal with the King of Jordan to occupy the West Bank and screw the Palestinians out of having their chance at even 22% of Palestine left for them, one-fifth. And in 67, Israel occupied that, and they cleansed another couple of hundred thousand people, but they kept millions of people, and they are essentially held in bondage. They're not really slaves because the, the Israelis don't want them, but they're like animals in a zoo or something. They have no rights whatsoever, no political rights, no economic rights, no civil liberties, no rule of law to protect them at all, okay? They live under absolutely arbitrary authority by a foreign occupying force for longer than the Soviets occupied Eastern Europe, okay, since 67, okay, for 53 years, they've lived in essentially in bondage. And that is the source of the controversy, okay, as bin Laden put it, that, you know, for him, he would never be satisfied with being, with their being in Israel at all. But how do you get guys to hijack planes and crash them into our towers? It's the literal injustice. It's not the metaphysical. It's not the abstraction. It's the literal injustice of people dying under Israeli boots. Okay. And in fact, I'll give you a very specific story. You guys are familiar with Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker of the September 11th plot. Well, Mohammed Atta was the leader of what they called the Hamburg cell. These were Egyptian engineering students studying in Hamburg, Germany and going to the local radical mosque there and so forth. And in 1996, um, uh, Shimon Perez launched Operation Grapes of Wrath in Southern Lebanon. And uh, as soon as he did that, Mohammed Atta filled out his last will and testament which was basically his equivalent of signing up for army boot camp. That was him dedicating himself now to this war. And shortly after that was just the next day or two days later was what's now called the first Kana massacre, Q-A-N-A, -A, the Kana massacre of 1996. Now there was another one in 2006. So now it's just the first Kana massacre. But anyway, they killed 104 women and children hiding in a United Nations shelter. The Israelis did, massacred them. And then Osama bin Laden put out his fatwa, his 1996 declaration of war against Jews and crusaders is what it's called. And in there he goes on and on, almost a third of it is about the Kana massacre and Operation Grapes of Wrath. The Israelis killing innocent civilians in Lebanon. And when Mohammed Atta saw that, that was when he convinced his uh, buddies, Ramzi bin al-Sheib and the others, let's go to Afghanistan and volunteer our services to this bin Laden guy. This is the fight that we want to be a part of. And so that was what they did. Because, you know, go ahead. So I had one thing I wanted to stop with, and I knew this was going to come up at some point, is for some reason, Israel is this this very bizarre taboo in American culture, where even people that don't pay attention to politics at all, if you're talking foreign policy to them and you mention Israel in any kind of critical manner, they kind of look around like you just dropped an end bomb. Like they're, they start getting nervous. You know, it's like, it's this very bizarre thing where if you are critical of the government of Israel, they kind of project onto you like, Oh, are you like some kind of anti-Semitic Holocaust denier? It's this very weird 
uh, phenomenon in our culture where, you know, U.S. foreign policy can't be talked about with without, uh, you know, the the Israeli influence. But it's almost impossible to talk about that subject because people treat it like it's radioactive. I mean, how do you you go about approaching that? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, this whole conversation started with how do you criticize American foreign policy without people crawling up into a ball and, you know, crying? Why do you hate America so much or whatever? You know, same thing with Israel. And just think about, God, what a successful public relations campaign where you say the slightest word negative about Israel. Everybody's mind goes back to we've all heard it before. The only people who criticize Israel are anti-Semites who they're just too afraid to use the J word. So this is how they get away with criticizing Jews is just by criticizing Israel. So they're not you know, man enough to go ahead and admit what Nazis they are. Or whatever. What a load of crap. I mean, give me a break. You know what? The super majority of American Jews support the two state solution. In other words, independence for the Palestinians. Well, why is that? It's because denying them their independence is wrong. That's why. So if super majorities of American Jews think that, well, guess what, then it ain't anti-Semitic to think that by definition, is it? You know, why would it be that you have such huge percentages of American Jews who are anti-Zionists or at least hardcore critics of the government of Israel? It's because what the government of Israel does is wrong. That's all. You know, Americans are rightfully proud that they crushed the Nazis and helped bring an end to the Holocaust anyway. Um, And, you know, they feel an affinity for Israel like, oh, we're their big brother protector to keep them safe. But Israel's not in danger. Israel's had a peace treaty with Egypt for 40 years, with Jordan for 40 years. They've been bombing Syria for 10 years straight. The Syrians haven't hit back once. They got America to smash Iraq into pieces for them. And that's it. They got the sea to their west. They got Turkey. Turkey, you know, was their ally for a very long time. And they're still at least friends, if not as close as they were before Erdogan. But they don't have any real beef with Turkey. They sided with Turkey in backing al-Qaeda in Syria over the last decade. So who's a threat to Israel? Nobody's a threat to Israel. One more thing here. You know, people talk about, you know, the Arabs, the sea of of, uh, Arab barbarians want to come and push all the Jews into the sea. Right. You've heard that. Well, guess what? It was an Israeli spy who made that up. It wasn't an actual Egyptian who said, we're going to push you into the sea. It was an Israeli spy. A false flag threat in the first place is where that comes from. But here's the thing about it. So you picture skinny little tiny little Israel on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea and surrounded by all these Arabs. And it seems plausible, right, that like you could just have this horde of orcs come and push all these lily white European Jews into the sea where they will all drown and whatever. But here's the thing about that nonsense. As I said, they're completely surrounded by friends. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, no threat. Turkey, um, Lebanon, no threat. I mean, they have Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, but they're not coming. They're only there to keep Israel out. Um, They're perfectly safe. You know who actually is threatened like that, besieged by enemies in their tiny little strip of land by the sea? You got to zoom in further. It's the people of the Gaza Strip. 
living in a concentration camp because they weren't born Jewish. They were born Muslim. And so they're convicts living in essentially like escape from New York prison by the sea. And it's a crime against humanity. It's absolutely sure. sickening. And, absolutely. you know, uh, Bet Salem, the, the Israeli peace group, compares the West Bank to a minimum security prison and the Gaza Strip to a maximum security prison. These people have yeah. no rights whatsoever. And I'm not justifying in any way. Look, I'm Howard Cosell calling the score here in terms of just what the truth is. Um, and I'm not in any way, obviously, justifying al-Qaeda terrorist attacks against this country or Hamas attacks against Israel or anybody else's attacks against anybody. I am saying this is the truth about what's going on here, okay? It ain't true that radical Islam turns decent men into psychopathic monsters who want only to seek out the most uh, white and innocent and pure Christians in the middle part of North America for daring to exist. That's a load of crap shoveled by liars. Scott, I got one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'll share something that has been very encouraging to me and then very discouraging. Something that's really encouraging I'm noticing is that when I talk to a lot of uh, left wing friends and a lot of conservative friends and I start talking foreign policy, like they'll come to this agreement. Like, yeah, what we're doing is unsustainable. It's counterproductive. If anything, maybe they they haven't listened to your show. They're not really privy to everything, but they kind of smell bullshit with the whole we're there to just fight terrorism and that we have some kind of coherent ending in sight. Like they realize that it's a quagmire pretty much everywhere. Right. So people well, pretty much everybody that you talk to, it's rare that I run into somebody who's like, no, we do still need to be there. Uh, so it seems like this kind of grassroots, the American people are kind of they're they're, you know, hip to this. What's discouraging to me is that after you get done with the conversation, they don't really have any any care. Like there's no political will from the people. It's like right now, foreign policy. Well, it might have been the biggest thing 15 years ago when George W. Bush was in office. Right now, it's like we have the culture war. We have health care. We have COVID. It's like all these things where it's like, hey, guys, how many people how, how many people have been killed by COVID? You know, maybe a couple hundred thousand. OK, let's look at the death toll of deaths that are not just, you know, the, the COVID deaths probably aren't even preventable. It's nature running its course. But these ones are preventable every day. What's happening in Yemen is preventable by just dropping this blockade. And it's it's you could tell people about it. They'll agree. Yeah, that's really bad. Four year olds starving to death looking like, you know, skeletons. That's really bad. Um, do you care? Are you going to are you going to say anything about this to anybody? And nobody seems to. It's like this this thing where it's so far back in the minds of the American people that that to me is discouraging. I mean, how do you think we get people to care? I mean, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I really don't know, man. It's a great question. And the reality is, I think that you've got it right, that people are over it they don't believe in it anymore like trump and the empire they just don't believe in it how can they it's 2020 we had 400 al-qaeda enemies 19 years ago now we got 40,000. something ain't right what the hell is going on around here you know um and whichever party you're in i guess you can blame bush or obama pick one and not the other but the reality is <laughs> is it's you know this policy this whole time that's led us to this um but, you know, like I wrote in the book about Afghanistan, the polls show this about Afghanistan. It's the least supported and least opposed war in American history. 
nobody supports us. It got like 13% support for staying in Afghanistan as of 2017. But when they do a poll where they say, what are your biggest concerns facing America? And it's like open answer, not multiple choice, open answer. They publish like the top 30 answers. And Afghanistan is nowhere on there. In the Middle East is not even on the list of top 30 concerns. Mm-hmm. And so, you know what they always say? They go, well, you need the draft. If you can script everybody, then they'll have a dog in the fight. Then the moms will finally complain. Then the temperature will go up and the protests will start up. Well, so the only way to achieve that is to enslave people, to force them to kill in a war that we already all agree is unjust. That's a pretty shitty means to an end there. You know, has anybody serious ever really put that forward? Oh, they do. They say it all the time, all the time. And they don't even realize that. Like what they're really saying is we're going to give the army an unlimited amount of infantry to use. And we think that that's going to end the war sooner. And then they invoke Vietnam and they go, well, it was the draft that caused all those protests and all those riots against the war. Okay, well, maybe after 10 years and three million dead and, you know, 60,000 Americans. uh, There's got to be a better way, but I don't know what it is. I got to tell you, I don't honestly. When when as soon as they started losing the war in Iraq, as soon as the occupation started going bad, people started tuning out. Oh, what fun it is to invade Iraq. What? A couple of truck bombs went off and we're not sure how this thing ends now. Oh, well, anyway, back to my hobbies. And and they quit caring and they haven't cared about foreign policy since then. And I don't know how to get them to care anymore. And and look, when you look at how much money is at stake, when you look at how, you know, um, how financially driven the entire project is. I mean, you got the Israelis and the Saudis in there and their interests, but mostly it's the military industrial firms whose job it is to sell weapons to the Pentagon. And they've got trillions at stake, literally trillions, Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of billions every year to keep the crisis going. And how do you turn that off when they spent there was just a new report out. They spend a measly stinking 50 million dollars a year on think tanks. 50 million I mean, that's the same budget that they spend on coke and whores for congressmen, right? That's nothing. That is nothing. Hmm. And But it's enough to produce a stack of studies this high about why we have to keep doing everything everywhere, always, forever. Scott, and then they get to cash checks for hundreds of billions of dollars in response. How do you turn that off until the dollar breaks? I think that's what Ron Paul always said. It won't be because they listen to me. It'll be because ultimately the American currency will fail. Yeah, that's scary. Scott, I want to shift gears a little bit because this is something I, I always wanted to ask you when I listen to you talk. Your level of passion about all this, I can, I can see it inside of you watching you talk right now. It's it's just, it's this is something that you just, you live for. What's the backstory? Where did you get so much fire and energy to, to pursue dedicating your life towards exposing what's going on well i mean really i just hate liars man i mean as much as all the injustice i i take the lies personally right like it's sort of like with the branch davidians right um i mean i've met a few now but at the time i didn't know any branch davidians i didn't have like any kind of special connection to this break-off group of pentecostals and their you know weird assness 
Mm-hmm. Um, but not only were they massacred, but then I had to hear a lifetime worth of lies about it. And I just sit here and be told by these cops, oh, yeah, no, they killed themselves. You know, oh, and also they deserved it. And all, you know, the hundred smaller lies that went along with that narrative. Well, now you made an enemy out of me because now I'm a victim of the Waco massacre, too, on on the small level, but enough to piss me off and create a permanent vendetta. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's the same thing for all of this. You know, I mentioned 340 sting operations, these fake terrorist attacks. Well, not to be too specific on you guys, but generally speaking, you and your audience, how did y'all's moms feel when you when they watched the nightly news and they were told, oh, my God, these guys were going to blow up the Sears Tower and we barely stopped them. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not okay. That's my mom. They're lying to, too, who they're trying to make afraid so that they have an excuse to kill people, innocent people. No, you know, it's an absolutely intolerable. Yeah, I would God. say. How could I fight against anything else but not the worst thing in the world? Well, yeah, I, I have the utmost respect for what you're doing. Um, I, I, we need more people like you. I, I will say I, I heard when Dave Smith was on Joe Rogan last week, I heard your name mentioned. I'm Joe Rogan. I was like, <laughs> and I was like, we're this close. Is there any hope just so I can sleep well tonight? Is there any hope Scott Horton gets on the Joe Rogan experience? Any talk about that? Anything? We can cut this too if you can. I, <laughs> I I think it's I have not heard from them or anything like that. Uh, I tried I to get on a that. couple of years ago when the Afghan book came out, um, but I think Dave worked on them a little bit the other day, and uh, we'll see. The what world happens. needs to hear this. You I know, mean, you just, guys, if I'm not mistaken, you're in Austin too now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm from here. Right, yeah. So I mean, yeah. seems like so logistically saying, it should all work out. You, I Alex when, you Jones, know, and Joe Rogan all get together. The, 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 the universe <laughs> wants it to happen. <laughs> You know, um, I got I got a new book that I I mean, I shouldn't ever say this because it never comes true. But I really, really, really want it out by Inauguration Day. Um, I'm going to really buckle down. I'm going to I'm going to deliberately slack on the show and, and really, really, really try to buckle down over the holidays here and get this goddamn book knocked out. And then I also have this really cool video series that this guy named Gus filmed where I'm sitting right here and he. Basically, film me all day, one day, doing essentially the whole book out loud, going through like 10 minute segments on each war. So that will be. It's probably the best footage of me explaining this stuff that you could find. And so Mm -hmm. that'll be like a playlist as we go all the way through. That'll be like a YouTube playlist and that'll come out to coincide with the book. So I figure I don't know if I can get him to read the book, if I can get Rogan to watch that playlist or get Dave to show him that playlist of me explaining this stuff yeah. through one time. I think that'll probably do it. I just think it's so important. Like, uh, you know, that's where even for, for this podcast, just if, if there's five new people that can hear of you, they've never heard of you before and just kind of get red pilled on what's going on and wake up and go, whoa, 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 what are we doing? Like we, we need that. We need people to wake up and realize this is horrific. You have all yeah, this black lives matter stuff going on. Everything's got, there's so much passion in the wrong direction when there's real crimes against humanity going on that are caused by the U.S. government right now. And it, it's something that we we need people to wake up to. That That's why I brought that up. I really, yeah. really hope that it gets exposed to it. At a yeah, me platform. too. I mean, I, I'm when I think about it, what I really want to do is I want to explain 
Israel-Palestine. You know, I want to ask that guy, Jamie, look, pull up a map and let me talk about what we're looking at here and see if I can explain. Because this is one, just like you guys came at me, I just don't know what to make of this whole Israel thing. Americans don't know. And on top of that, as you were saying, you know, you get the idea. You're not supposed to ask these questions or else, you know, you're some kind of terrible person. And, you know, that just absolutely has to change. I think I could do a lot of good just explaining who's absolutely. occupying who. You know, we did a poll. Grant Smith did a poll from the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. Um, and there were some other people who did some polls like this where more Americans think the Palestinians are occupying the Israelis than the other way around. They wow. just don't wow. know the first thing about it. In fact, if you look at a map of Israel, it kind of looks like somebody invaded from the east and took out a big chunk of it in the West Bank. But what that really is, is that's what's left that the Israelis haven't stolen yet. Right. But it can be like a pretty tricky optical illusion. If you just look at the map and don't know, you would really presume that Israel was here and then somebody came and stole a piece out of it is what it looks like. And so I want to I, I think I would I think it'd be a good challenge to see if I could explain that situation in a way to to Joe Rogan and to his audience to get people to understand that. Awesome. And I, I also have time, you know, I have Gene Epp. I have Gene Epstein coming on Sunday from, you know, from the Soho Forum. And I was going to ask him about what happened with the Bill Crystal debate. Cause I was, Nick almost bought tickets to, to go out there. We live in Illinois and he's like, I want to go see this live. This is before I've never been COVID. to New York. I thought it'd be a good time. He's to like, go. I'm going. So, so yeah. just, to, just to give you a little bit of uh, how much respect Nick has for you. He's the one that turned me on to you. Nick's getting married tomorrow. Um, so this is kind of like his cyber bachelor party 2.0 we're doing right wow. now. Wow. Congratulations, but, man. Yeah, but rather than get Rather than getting him strippers, I got him Scott Horton, and he's happier with that. <laughs> I'm not going to dance for you, dude. Yeah, no, it's okay. Talking's all that we need. But, no, it was, you know, Mike told me, like, yesterday, he's like, hey, I'm talking to Scott Horton tomorrow. I'm like, all right, let's make the tech happen. I'll be there, you know? So it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And, you cool. know, yeah, no, I, I don't know if you want to close with anything, Mike. I had a couple uh, just – little things to end with but if you whatever wanna... you got man it's fine well, yeah up to you i mean scott you know, we're, we're hitting when an hour mark here so it's up to you i don't want to keep you longer than you have if you want to yeah, stay longer whatever you guys fine. got is fine go ahead um and you're welcome to have any plugs you want at the end but nick go ahead ask whatever, whatever questions you have okay so let's see uh, i had a couple of rapid fire questions ready to go okay let's assume joe biden and kamala come in in january uh, and the Taliban sees what's happening with this schizophrenic U.S. foreign policy, depending on which king we elect every four years. Wh what actually changes in Afghanistan? Is it just more status quo and not just Afghanistan, but the one that might be a lot bigger of an issue is Syria, because it seems yeah. like we talked about, uh, you know, the whole Assad has to go thing might be back on the menu, which yep. second of all, that was the thing I was going to ask you about. Whenever there's one of these, these conflicts arising, the media has a certain phrase that's like very specific. I remember back when Ron Paul was running, it was Ron Paul is a kook and I quote a kook. And I'm like, why does everybody use that same term? I've never heard anybody else refer to almost anybody as a kook and everybody calls Ron Paul a kook. And when it came to Syria, it was Assad quote has to go like, which is a very Strange way to say we need to dethrone or overthrow this guy. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll go with that. The vernacular that you see come out of the media and out of the political class where it's all this monolithic thing where they're not even hiding that they're like copying each other's homework. What, what do you make of that? And how frustrating yeah. is that as somebody who knows this stuff inside and out? 
Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the thing is, what sucks about it is how effective it is. Is that, you know, I remember this when I was a kid. It was uh, Randy Weaver was the guy who they attacked his family at Ruby Ridge, Idaho, at the yeah. end of the H.W. Bush years. Right. And they murdered his son on the first day. They murdered his wife on the second day, shot her in the head as she's holding an infant daughter or infant daughter in her arms. And then they rigged the whole thing up to make him the bad guy. And the way that they did it was they called him white separatist Randy Weaver. And they didn't just call him white separatist Randy Weaver. They called him white separatist Randy Weaver about 160 million times. So that the guy's first name was White. And then his middle name was separatist Randy. And then his last name was Weaver. And that was it. White separatist Randy Weaver. He is guilty. He is presumed guilty. He is a bad person, and you will not sympathize with him, even though they murdered his boy and his wife for no reason. You know, yeah. and that's just how they do it. And it works, man. It works for mm -hmm. Donald Trump, too, right? Donald Trump started calling Marco Rubio Little Marco. What's up, Little Marco? Why don't you learn how to grow a whisker on your chin there, Little Marco? And that was it. Marco Rubio will be little Marco for the rest of his life. You know, it's as simple as that. Assad has to go and, and look at the question they're begging. Does America have the right? Does the American government have the right to choose the government of Syria? Well, of course not. Of course not. Not by our Constitution and not by the U.N. Charter that the American you know, U.S. Senate ratified. We have no authority whatsoever to change the regime in Syria. We are bound to respect their independence and sovereignty, according to the law, whatever that is. Um, we, but then they just presume it. And it's you know, what it is. It's like arguing past the sale. Like if I tell you, hey, buddy, what color Corvette are we putting in your driveway this afternoon? Red or yellow? And now I got you talking about red or yellow, not whether you're actually buying the car or not. You know, <laughs> and that's what they do. And they just presume the authority to say who gets to be the leader of Syria and who doesn't. And even when we all know there is no opposition prepared to replace Assad other than al-Qaeda, led by um, Abu Mohammed al-Jalani, the loyal servant of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. Wow. I, and they just go on anyway. Yeah, no, it is, it is absolutely wild that these things can just persist, like these ideas, and people will just accept them and not say, hey, we're swallowing a bunch of bullshit right now. It's just, you know, in they fact, go back along to with Assad. it. They like Look it. At, the, at the worst part of the war in Syria in 2015, 14 and 15, they're saying about Assad, well, he's just a genocidal dictator. He's killing his own people. And that's why we're supporting these moderate rebels to try to resist him. Well, I mean, come on. Talk about the cart before the horse and that whole story. Does that make any sense at all? This guy who's the, you know, um, hereditary autocrat dictator of this country, that one day he just woke up and decided to exterminate the civilian population of his country. And that then America and their allies decided to help some plucky moderate rebels to try to hold him off. Come on, he's bombing the rebels. That's who he's bombing. The guys that we're backing, the armed fighters that we're backing against him is who he's bombing. And they just pretend like, oh, yeah, well, you know how Assad is. He just likes killing civilians. And that's the only reason we intervened in here at all. Well, that's just a damn lie. You know, that's just like calling night day. Doesn't make it true.
But as you're saying, repeat it enough times and people will start to believe that. I remember on the uh, speaking of Dave Smith, he was on the SE Cup show on CNN. And she goes, oh, this Bashar al-Assad and his henchmen and Vladimir Putin. And these are the worst people in the whole world. And Dave Smith says, I'm not so sure they're even the worst people in Syria. They're up against <laughs> Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, who is the leader of al-Qaeda. And that is the leader of the opposition. So how can you still want to see this guy overthrown when you know the only people prepared to replace him are the guys that knocked the towers down just a few blocks from here? You know, or at least those who are sworn loyal to those who knocked our towers down. Same damn difference. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I guess like the big picture here is, you know, like I was seven years old when 9-11 happened. Mike was 10. I remember it crystal clear. And basically from the time I was seven years old in 2001 to a senior in high school when Ron Paul was running for president, like I, that's why I don't frown on people or think less of them when they're kind of brainwashed into thinking this, even though, like we talked about before, now they're more just dispassionate than anything. But it's like, no, I had the the scales fall from my eyes. Like it was listening to Ron Paul and then kind of getting into politics a little more hardcore later, discovering like Dave Smith and you and those kind of guys uh, mm-hmm. that I really woke up to this. But to, to the average person, it's like, yeah, OK, the, the terrorist attack happened. Uh, we acted on some bad information over through Saddam. And then, you know, there were these uh, this this hotbed of terrorism that was able to to grow out of that. And now we're just trying to manage it and we're trying to promote pro-democracy governments in the Middle East. And then you find out it's like, no, actually, we are arming and funding the same group of people and their factions that attacked us on 9-11. And we are actively taking down democracies in the Middle East. And when you say that to people, they it's it's like the. You know, you just watch their eyes glaze over because it's just so much. It's such heavy material, you know, and that's right. why it's that's why it's something that, you know, like you were talking about with Waco. It's like people, if you tell them you've been lied to, it's not like it breaks their worldview and their identities taken from them. It's like, no, you've been lied to and you can still hold on to your identity, whether you're conservative or liberal. You talk about attacking the right from the right and the left from the left. Mm-hmm. To me, that seems like it, it's the best strategy going forward. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and look, um, you could be a leftist and be against the Second Amendment and still look at what they did to the Branch Davidians and say, this is absolutely crazy. I mean, what what self-respecting leftist wants to work, wants to live in a world where the FBI can do that to anybody, whether they're Trans Am driving, you know, rifle toting rednecks or whether it's the move organization in Philadelphia. Right. We don't want and right wingers ought to feel the same way. They look at Waco. They ought to understand and sympathize with the members of Move that the FBI bombed in Philly in 1985. Um, You know, it's the same thing with the Black Lives Matter. You know, when the second Waco massacre happened in what was that, 2015, when the cops uh, murdered all the bikers at that uh, at that restaurant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Basically, two major biker gangs were there and a couple of fist fights broke out and maybe one of the bikers fired a shot in the air or something like that. And then the cops who were surrounding them with AR-15s just opened up and just started slaughtering the crowd of people, just gunned them all down and then arrested all of them and indicted all of them in, in order to try to cover up the whole thing. And anyway, it's absolutely horrible, absolutely horrible. And 
I was actually saying on Twitter at the time to some of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement that now's your chance. Right. You ought to rush down to Waco and take the side of these white and Mexican Harley Davidson riding bikers. And you ought to say to them, we are here to support you. We agree with you. And now you see what we're going through, too. This is the same kind of thing that we're complaining about. They do it to you. This is the same thing that they do to us. And if a bunch of, you know, all white Harley riding rednecks don't cotton too much to Black Lives Matter. Well, that's just too bad. Black Lives Matter is just here to love them to death anyway and stand in solidarity with them anyway. And how would they have reacted to that? They would have paid that back is exactly how they would have reacted to that. Same thing happened with the the Bundy family. I was arguing with a girl from Black Lives Matter on Twitter. I know she meant well, but I said, listen, these people are just like you. And this it's it's the enemy is the state. It's the human beings of the country versus the government employees of the country. That's what's going on here. And she says, that's not true. These people hate us. And she posted a picture of one of the Bundy guys or one of his followers with a sign that said BLM with a circle and a line through it. That means Bureau of Land Management, the federal (laughs) cops. That doesn't mean Black Lives Matter. He doesn't hate you. He's not thinking about you at all. You imagine possibly that because he's white, he has some power or something. Well, Mm -hmm. let me tell you something. He doesn't. Okay, he's just like you, a victim of arbitrary police power. And maybe he's a dumb redneck who doesn't see the similarity. Maybe. But which is actually not true at all about Eamon Bundy. He's great. Um, But even if that is true. You should go and support them anyway. You should be on their side, too, and show them you're the bigger man. You understand, whether they understand or not, that we're all in the same gang here. The real enemy is the state. And then that would do a hell of a lot to impress the right, too. And, you know, there's this guy, Ford Fisher, is this independent journalist who's been going around and documenting the rallies. And there's been some real tough standoffs. You had Black Lives Matter and the three percenters nose to nose armed, ready to fight in louisville kentucky recently but guess what you well pardon me you also had black lives matter and three percenters working together arm in arm hand in hand hugging each other and saying we want accountability for killer cops and all this kind of thing you be you keep your identity i'll be me keep my identity and we'll focus on what's important here which is accountability for cops who break the law that is the deal and sure. and you know what? Just a little bit of imagination can really help to break people's mind right open. You know, and in fact, look at Waco, Waco, the victims, even though actually like a third of them were black. But you weren't supposed to know that you're supposed to think of them as all, you know, white trans am driving redneck hillbillies or whatever, this kind of thing and detest them. But Bill Hicks who was a leftist, you know, he was a comedian, but obviously an extremely important and an extremely serious comedian as far as that goes. He had a great bit on Waco. He was one of the only leftists in America to care about the Branch Davidians, him and Alexander Coburn and maybe a couple of others. But Bill Hicks had a great bit about Waco, and he starts out making fun of their religion. And how silly, like this is a very fringy version of Protestant Christianity here. And he has his fun making fun of their belief in the seven seals and all this. But really, he's just getting the audience lubed up 
He's just getting them ready. So then he turns right around and he explains about how everything that happened there was the government's fault. They were the ones who persecuted these poor people, machine gunned them and burned them to death. And as he puts it, you know, F them. They are liars and murderers. All governments are liars and murderers. And he doesn't let his audience off the hook one bit. And he gets all of them, all left leaning people, you know, typically speaking, to see that just because I'm not like the Branch Davidians doesn't mean that what happened to them is tolerable to somebody like me. And Mm -hmm. so same thing with look at all the left wing journalists who defended Trump on Russiagate. Right. Because the truth is the truth. And the CIA are a bunch of liars. And this whole thing is a hoax. It just ain't right. And there are people who would like to see Trump in prison for other reasons, but not for this because it just ain't true. And that's the kind of thing that really opens people's minds and changes people's minds. As you were saying, you don't have to change who you think you are. You just have to be able to admit that you were wrong about this one thing, you know, and then it's our job to make it easy for people to see that like, okay, you're right. You know? Yeah. Uh, so Scott, I always like ending my podcast on a you know a happier note because we've talked about a lot of serious content that that's that's um, a lot of very depressing things and things that hopefully get resolved. But another question I've always wanted to ask you, just because of how passionate you are about this anti-war movement, what are your favorite anti-war songs like in rock and roll history or anything? Are do you are you Good into question. any of that type stuff? I've always hmm. wanted to wonder, like, does, do you like the, the Vietnam era stuff? Are you any anti-war music? Is that anything yeah, you're interested nah, in? I, I can't say I really like, I mean, I, you know, we all grew up on Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. Although I don't know if any of that is really explicitly anti-war right. so much. Um, I'll tell you what, when I was in junior high school, uh, I'm really showing my age. I'm a lot older than you guys. Um, when I was in junior high school was when Master of Puppets came out. Okay. And that was the last good metallic album before they turned into Alice in Chains and started blowing each other and making horrible music about how much they love their mom. <laughs> and crap. But anyway, on that, this, the first song on the second side of that is Disposable Heroes. And what I really like about really that whole era of late 80s metal, Metallica, Slayer and Megadeth and Pantera and that whole group of, of metal bands around that is they always sang about the world wars, you know, Iron Maiden, too. Mm-hmm. They always sang not about Vietnam. They always sang about the big ones. And then in Disposable Heroes, especially that Metallica song, um, you know, it's about World War Two. And it's from the point of view, I guess, of an army officer, essentially um, explaining just how worthless the life of a GI is to him and back to the front, you know, and all of that. And that's a hardcore anti-war song. And also it really rocks. It's a badass song, especially if you're like 13 and, and Metallica <laughs> are, are still cool, not gay yet. And actually like a real <laughs> badass tough guys and all of this stuff. Like that was a huge influence on me as a kid. Cause if world war two, isn't the good war, then none of them are right. And it, and also again, it's like attacking the right from the right. Metallica aren't hippies, right? Or maybe they aren't whatever they are now. When they wrote Master of Puppets, they weren't hippies. They were tough guys, but they were telling this. The song was from the point of view of the used, not of the powerful, you know, but, you know, the a 21 year old soldier who doesn't make it home, you know. Um, Have, and then, you know, I don't know, all throughout rap music and 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 hardcore and, and punk rock and stuff, there's all lots of anti-war and 
anti-government themed stuff. I'm a big public enemy kid. I've always was, you know, big on public enemy and, you know, they're definitely anti-war trying to think if they got any like explicitly anti-war songs. Um, I know ghetto boys had a great one about Iraq war one (laughs) F award. You ever hear that one? No, that was a, that was a really good one, man. Um, Have you ever heard uh, Masters of War by Bob Dylan? From uh, Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's, that's the song covered is, a couple of times. Yeah, it's one of the songs still with chills up my, my spine every time I hear it, where it's like that. It's, it just translates from the 60s to now, and it's like nothing's changed. The, the song yeah. got popular, but it didn't work. Right. You know? um, I think it might have something to do with the kind of Bob Dylan, which I still love the writing of it, but it's... Right. You know, I get why it doesn't skyrocket necessarily. Sure. Right. Um, it's uh, and, you know, Dylan was really a man of his time, too. So mm-hmm. it, it it fit in that era much better than it does in this one in terms of the sound of it. All that kind of folk music and stuff sure. is really say now. But um, and you know what? I bet if I like went down my list here, I would find a bunch of great stuff. But, you know, off the top of my head. Yeah, you know, that's, essentially, that's, I, was I like curious, a lot you... of a lot of punk and hardcore and hip hop and stuff that is all very, you know, anti-government yeah. and anti-establishment. I, and I've always wondered what kind of music Scott Horton listens to. Is he a, a 60s kind of, you know, Buffalo Springfield guy or is he a metal guy? And now I know. Oh, um, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, much more likely to. If, if I mean, like if you read my book, Fool's Aaron, you should read that to Poison Idea. That's what I was listening to when I wrote it. OK, if that helps. <laughs> Scott, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Um, this is something that, you know, Nick and I have for a long time wanted to do. Um, gosh, I feel like we'd scratch like 1% of the stuff I'd like to hear from you. About. <laughs> That's every time I listen to Scott talk. Happy to do it anytime, guys. Yeah, yeah I appreciate yeah. It. Um, it. Feel free to give any plugs for your books, uh, your, your podcast, anything you want to do. Go ahead. All right. So I am the uh, founder and the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And um, with the great Sheldon Richmond and Pete Canones and Kyle Anzalone there, got a great little group and uh, check out all our podcasts and stuff. I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com, which is the most important project on the Internet. Uh, proud to be associated with that. I host the Scott Horton Show, which is an interview show on foreign policy. I've done 5,400 something interviews. They're all available for you at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash Show. And... I'm on the radio in Los Angeles on Sunday mornings, 90.7 FM in L.A. for anti-war radio. And then I wrote Fool's Errand and The Great Ron Paul. Fool's Errand is my book about Afghanistan, and The Great Ron Paul is a book of transcripts of uh, 30 interviews that I did with Dr. Paul from 2004 to 2019. And I think that's about it. Scott, thank you so much. Hey, thank you both very much for having me. Appreciate it. When you visit Arizona... Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.